This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good afternoon and welcome. I'm John Echebendi, University Provost. It's my honor to welcome you to the Frank E. and Arthur W. Payne Lecture at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. The late Frank Payne was a Stanford graduate whose distinguished career in international business inspired his family to name this lectureship for Frank and his brother Arthur, so that others might develop insights into our global community. The Payne Lecture annually brings to the Stanford campus an international leader and visionary who can help increase public understanding of complex global policy issues. Our special guest this afternoon certainly fits that description. Dr. Mohammed El Baradai is the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency. He is joined this evening by his wife, Ada El Baradai. We welcome her to Stanford as well. In this crucial position, Dr. Baradai heads the world's nuclear safeguard organization under the aegis of the United Nations. The agency works with member states to promote safe, secure, and peaceful nuclear technologies. In October 2005, Dr. El and his agency were jointly awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for efforts to, quote, prevent nuclear energy from being used for military purposes and to ensure that nuclear energy for peaceful purposes is used in the safest possible way. Dr. El last visited Stanford in 2004 to deliver the Drell Lecture. Since then, Stanford faculty members have been working with the International Atomic Energy Agency on such issues as reducing incentives to enrich uranium and improving the security of nuclear facilities. He has spent the day at Stanford with faculty and students, and we look forward to further collaboration. Tonight, Dr. Elberadai will discuss our world's nuclear future with Professor Scott Sagan. Scott is Professor of Political Science and Director of Stanford's Center for International Security and Cooperation. Before joining the Stanford faculty, Professor Sagan taught at Harvard and served as a special assistant to the director of the Organization of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon. He's also served as a consultant to the Office of the Secretary of Defense and at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. He's among, Stan among the Stanford faculty members working with the International Atomic Energy Agency. Let me briefly describe this evening's format. Dr. El Baradai and Professor Sagan will engage in conversation, a conversation about the Iranian nuclear crisis and other non-proliferation issues. They will then open up the floor to questions. This afternoon's discussion promises to be enlightening, so please join me in welcoming Dr. Mohammed El Baradai and Professor Scott Sagan. Well, let me echo the provost's welcoming note to you, Dr. El Baradai, because I'm so pleased that you agreed to come back to Stanford again this year, for there's no international public servant whose integrity and work I admire more than yours. And I greatly appreciate how these visits to Stanford enable us to foster continuing collaboration between the IAEA and Stanford faculty and researchers at the Center for International Security and Cooperation. 
What I would like to do this evening is to start global, discussing your vision of potential alternative nuclear futures, and then go regional through the different crises that we are facing today, starting with Iran, moving east to South Asia, India and Pakistan, and then North Korea, and then finally coming back local to the United States to elicit your views about current U.S. nuclear weapons policy and nonproliferation. And then after our dialogue, I'll open it up for Q&A from the audience. So let's start. In 1963, President John F. Kennedy famously stated that he had a nuclear nightmare in which 15 to 25 nuclear weapon states would exist by the 1970s. Kennedy's nightmare did not come to pass, in part because of his and subsequent administration's efforts to create the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty and the International Atomic Energy Agency. But many proliferation specialists now speculate that perhaps Kennedy's prediction was not wrong, it was just premature. So my first question is, what is your nuclear nightmare? In the worst case scenario, using 2020 vision, how many nuclear weapon states might there be in the year 2020? Scott, let me, let me first express my gratitude to Professor Echtemendi, and it's my pleasure to be back here at Stanford and uh, have the opportunity you know, to share some ideas, some reflections with the Stanford community. Your question, whether President Kennedy was wrong or his prediction was premature, is really up to us right now. I think we're reaching a fork in the road. You know. uh, I believe that the system that we have developed in 1970 served us well for three decades. Uh, but events in the last few years have made it very clear that we need to change course. Uh, the illicit trafficking network of nuclear material and equipment made it clear that we cannot just rely on export control to stem the spread of, of nuclear weapons. Uh, the recent uh, demonstration of a number of countries uh, trying to acquire uh, nuclear weapons, started, starting by Iraq pre-1990, Libya, you know, uh, our effort right now to verify the program in Iran, uh, makes it clear that there is lots of temptation still for more countries to acquire nuclear weapons, either as a shield or to project their ideology. But uh, basically, there is a still a prevailing sense of insecurity uh, and a temptation to emulate uh, the big powers who continue to rely on, on nuclear weapons. Uh, we have moved from five states to nine right now, you know, five states in 1970 to eight or nine, depending whether you consider... The ninth being North Korea. Whether North a, Korea is, is in or out, uh, but most likely it is in. Uh, and unless, unless which we have also seen that a smart way to be a latent uh, or a virtual nuclear weapon state is to develop the capability to, to produce nuclear weapon on a short notice without necessarily developing such weapon. Uh, acquiring the technology to enrich uranium or to reprocess plutonium, which basically the key to develop nuclear weapons, as we have seen recently manifestation of that in, in Iran, I mean the, the effort to develop the technology, uh, raised an alarm that 
if you develop that technology, if every country were to develop a factory to enrich uranium, they are really, as I call them, virtual weapon states because in six months' time, if you like, if they decide for security reasons to develop their own weapon, they are there. So uh, there's a lot we need to change. As, as I've been advocating, we need to revisit the whole framework of using nuclear energy. Nuclear energy is still you know, a major source of electricity production. It's still a, very much needed, in, I think, in the next few decades for development, uh, particularly in many of the developing countries like India and Pakistan. Uh, but at the same time, with any other, like any other technology, we need to make sure that the dark side of that technology is controlled. Add to all of that, Scott, and, and I think I, I, I should mention also the terrorism phenomenon, the, the, the sophisticated terrorist groups who have been trying to acquire nuclear weapons. That is my number one nightmare scenario, if you like, frankly, because any of the states who are suspected, if you like, of developing nuclear weapons, in most likelihood would respond to the so-called deterrence, nuclear deterrence, that if you use, if you use if you, nuclear weapons, you will be completely you know, pulverized. Uh, that does not apply to a group of, nuclear, of group of terrorists, because if they were to acquire any of these weapons, in all likelihood, they are going to use it. That's exactly what they want to do, is revenge. It, it, they, I mean, they are ready to sacrifice their life in the process. So that would be my number one nightmare. And then, of course, there are so many, many nightmares, including you know, a, a cascade of proliferation of, of nuclear weapons. Then President Kennedy's prediction will be fulfilled. Then, I think, will be the beginning of the end for humanity as we know it. I cannot ask you to reveal your nightmare without also asking you to say a word or two about good dreams. Um, what's your positive vision as the agency charged with both stemming proliferation and promoting the growth of nuclear power for energy purposes? What is your best case scenario that lets you rise in the morning with a smile on your face? Well, my best case scenario, I'm not sure I have full smile, but... You know, half smile, then. Half smile. Uh, is that pe people have become aware to the danger we're facing. You know, I, I see right now lots of discussion about multinational approaches to the fuel cycle, which me meaning, you know, denying, you know, the, the right of every country to have its own enrichment factory, but have it under multinational control or regional control. Uh, I see that as positive. Uh, uh, the effort that has been made everywhere to combat what we call, you know, uh, the terrorism phenomenon, uh, acquiring weapons of mass destruction, I think, I think there's a lot of attention being given, being given to that. Uh, I think the effort, uh, you know, to bring the countries who have been in the last 20, 30 years regarded as an outcast, like India, for example, you know, into the fold and trying to work with a unified international community as partners uh, to to avoid a proliferation of, further proliferation of nuclear weapons and, and make sure that we, we will combat uh, terrorism. I think these are all positive. It's a question of the speed with which we are working, the, the depth of our convi conviction, and the commonality of our approach. These are still, you know, we all agree on the overall objective, but there's a lot of differences, as we know, on, on tactics. And uh, that sometimes is, is very... Uh, 
it's very unnerving, you know, because you know you, you need, to, you need to, to, to work as fast as, fast as you can, and yet to, you see we're bogged down on so many details that are peripheral to the, to, the overall, to the overall objective. If I look, of course, to the positive side of nuclear energy, you know, I see, I see, a, I see a lot of smiles. You know, I, I, people forget that nuclear energy is used for radiotherapy treatment, for example, you know. Uh, when I go sometimes to some of the developing countries and I see we are the one who are providing, you know, the radiotherapy machines for people who are diagnosed with cancer for, you know, for treatment. Uh, when I see that, that nuclear energy is providing, is providing energy, without energy, you know, there is no development. I, I give you an example. I mean, here in the U.S., each American citizen uh, has 1,800 uh, uh, what uh, per, you know, at, it, at his or her disposal. That's enough, obviously, to you know, uh, power your refrigerator, air conditioning, iPod, what have you. you know. uh, in Nigeria, it's, uh, it's 8 watt. And that's 8 watt, the equivalent, it would not even power your, your own personal computer. So uh, in the U.S. per year, there's 16,000 kilowatts. In, in Nigeria, and it's a large country, it's 70 kilowatt per year. So there is an, you know, we need to understand that without energy, you know, there is no development. Without development, there's a lot of despair. With despair, with sense of, with lack of hope, there is extremism. So all these things come together, you know, development, security, and nuclear is not, obviously cannot provide the all, energy, all the energy we need, but it's an important part of the mix, and I think I see that happening in, particularly in many countries that are in huge hunger for, for, for energy like China and India when, when the use of nuclear is multiplying very, very rapidly every year. The relationship between the quest for power for energy purposes and the potential quest for nuclear weapons is at the heart of the Iran, uh, Iran nuclear crisis today. So let's turn to that. For those of you who... Um, have not heard the, the latest news. Um, this morning, Dr. Condoleezza Rice, Secretary of State, announced that the United States would now switch its policy and would join in multilateral negotiations with the European powers and Iran under two conditions. First, that Iran verifiably and fully uh, ceases its uranium enrichment and reprocessing activities um, and second, that they permit the IAEA inspectors under what's called the agreed protocol to come in and have full uh, inspections, including surprise visits uh, when Dr. Abaradai uh, determines those as being necessary. Uh, this afternoon, however, contradictory reactions have come out of Tehran. It is the middle of the night there, so perhaps this is understandable. The Iranian state-run news agency said Dr. Rice's comments could be considered propaganda given the insistence by Iranian authorities on continuing uranium enrichment, and yet an Iranian security official who did not want to be named called this a good opportunity for Iran. So here's my question. You have spent more time than perhaps anyone with two sets of parties in this drama who have not talked to each other. Dr. Rice, John Bolton, President Bush, you've met with them regularly, and senior Iranian officials, you've met with them. What's your prognosis for what's going to happen in uh, Act Two of this drama? 
What are the chances of a mutually acceptable compromise, and what does the IAEA do to maximize those chances? Professor Sagan, I, I think I'm, again, against all odds, I'm optimistic, you know, that, uh, that, that ultimately we will find a solution to the Iranian problem, you know. This is a problem that has been going on for 50 years, you know, uh, you know with grievances with 1979, with the hostage-taking, with grievances on the Iranian side, with the CIA helping removing the first elected, uh, democratically right. elected government in Iran of uh, Prime Minister Mossadegh. So there is a lot of grievances in between, you know. Uh, however, you know, I think both parties realize that they need to cohabitate, if you like. They need to work together a system by which Iran is recognized as a responsible regional power and the U.S. is recognized as a global power. Uh, Iran sits in, in the most turbulent area in the world, in the Middle East. Iran has a lot of influence, if you like, uh, that could be used positively and negatively in Iraq, in Afghanistan, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Palestinian territory. Uh, there is a lot of Iran, you know, hold the third largest reservoir of, of oil, you know, has a lot of natural gas, you know, uh, close proximity of the Gulf, you know, which the Gulf states. Uh, so there is lots of interests that require both parties, you know, to search for common solutions. Uh, uh, the decision today, I think, by Dr. Rice is a very welcome decision. I've been calling, at least, and many others for, for some time now that the only solution is a negotiated solution. You know, the only durable solution has to be when you get all the parties to sit, settle their grievances, agree on a, on a, on a, on a solution that perceived by everybody to be fair. Uh, now the, we still have some of the coarse language, you know, uh, you know, of course it is understandable that the Iranians are not happy, you know, that they have been called, you know, as a state still harboring terrorism today, that they have been called that uh, a country that's still trying to acquire nuclear weapons. Uh, and of course they are using their own, their own language rhetoric. But, but I think if you distill that, you know, the decision today by, in, by Secretary Rice, it's, it's a very significant decision. This is the first time since 1979, I believe, when the U.S. decided to sit face-to-face -face with the Iranian authorities, with the Iranian representatives. I have talked today to the Iran National Security Advisor, urging him to seize that opportunity. Of course, as I said, they are somewhat unhappy with the tone of the statement, but uh, my advice was focus on the message. And rhetoric is not really what matters right now. We need to focus on the substance. We need to focus on, on the future. Uh, tomorrow there is going to be a meeting at the ministerial level between the, the permanent five member of Security Council plus Germany in Vienna. Uh, I hope at that meeting there will be again an offer that, that is made to Iran that would on the one hand, satisfy the concern of the international community about Iran's uh, ambitions, you know, uh, to develop nuclear weapons, and also satisfy Iran's right uh, to use nuclear energy for, for peaceful purposes. I think Secretary Rice was right today to say that nobody questions Iran's right to use nuclear energy for peaceful purposes, and that's correct. Uh, I think also the statement were made over a number of, number of times that 
what is requested by Iran right now is to suspend the enrichment-related activities. And the word is suspension. It's not a ban. It's suspension for a period of time until Iran uh, has worked with the international community to build confidence. Uh, the good news that Iran, in principle, agree that they are ready to postpone the industrial-scale enrichment for a number of years inside Iran, and they are ready to do that outside Iran. The, the, also, the good news that they are ready to work with the agency to, in, to ensure that the agency, during this period, will have a robust verification system that, to assure the international community that there is no undeclared activities in Iran. Uh, the sticking point continues to remain the so-called R&D, research and development on enrichment inside Iran. Iran believes that they have, at the very least, to continue to do research and development inside Iran. Uh, the international community have asked Iran to suspend all enrichment-related activities. Uh, so, the big-ticket items, there is an agreement on the big-ticket items. There is still, as I said, this one sticking point, which is the suspension of the research and development activities in Iran. Uh, I hope, you know, with creative diplomacy, with goodwill, that we should be able to find a solution to that. Hopefully tomorrow at that meeting, uh, they need to be able to thrash out that item. Hopefully Iran will show, will show some flexibility. Iran, when we talk about Iran, you mentioned Iran uh, branding the, the agreement as propaganda. I mean, we need to be careful which Iran are we speaking about. I mean, Iran, there's a variety and array of views inside Iran. There are, again, the hardliners, the moderates, the, the liberals. And uh, my view always has been we need to work with the silent majority. In, in any country, we need to, the silent majority that has always looked for a peaceful settlement of disputes, who believe in, in, the, in, in that solutions to disputes, if they are to be durable, has to be through negotiation and through diplomacy. And there is a good bulk, I think, of the Iranian uh, public who would like to see a settlement of, of, of the nuclear issue, but the nuclear issue meaning security issues. Uh, when you talk about nuclear issue, as I just mentioned, it really masks an iceberg of regional security issues. What is the role of Iran in, in the region? What is the role of the U.S. in the region? And right. that's why I've been always saying that uh, you cannot just continue to have the dialogue with the Europeans. When it comes to security, it is, there is only one country that can address the Iranian security con concern and then can talk to Iran also about its own concern, whether it's Iran support of extremist groups, human rights records, what have you. And that's the U.S. So I see, I see today's announcement as the beginning, hopefully, of a, a grand deal that can end up in a much more stable Middle East, that can end up with a, a relationship between Iran and the U.S. that is a win-win situation for both parties. If this deal does not work, put on your crystal ball or look into your crystal ball again, um, how are the neighboring states likely to react if Iran continues to enrich uh, uranium? Um, you speak with the Saudis, the Egyptians, and others. Would this mean the end of the NPT or not? I think be a, there is a good deal of concern in the neighborhood about the Iranian program. S similar that there is a good deal of concern about the Korean pro uh, program. Uh, I think in any neighborhood, if, if a country is suspected that, that they might be harboring ambition to develop nuclear weapon program, there's obviously ramification in the neighborhood. Uh, 
and that could lead, obviously, to, as I said, cascade of proliferation. I think, I think if, if, you, if, if Iran were to develop a nuclear weapon, I would expect that many countries in the region uh, will not stand still. There's already a lot of agitation in the region because of, the, because of Israel that remains outside the non-proliferation regime. Right. If you have Iran also de developing nuclear weapon capability or nuclear weapon, I think, I think you will see a much more uh, agitated Middle East. You will see a number of countries developing uh, or trying to develop nuclear weapons. Same, same with North Korea. I think unless we resolve the North Korean situation as early as possible, I, there will be an impact in my view, in, in, in the neighborhood. So, uh, again, that's when I say I come back to President Kennedy's prediction. You know, if we want to really maintain the integrity of the non-proliferation, we need to send a clear message, everybody, that we are on our way to get rid of nuclear weapons. We are on our way for nuclear disarmament, a commitment that was made by everybody in 1970. Uh, the fact that we still have 27,000 warheads in existence Today, you know, the fact that we still have eight or nine countries that rely on nuclear weapons does not augur well, you know, because countries that feel insecure, that feel that they, they want to have power and status, are very tempted to emulate the, the major league players who are continuing to say that nuclear weapons are important for our security. So there are choices to be made. There are challenges that we are facing. And that at the basic challenge, have we care? how we can have a global security system, Scott, that does not rely on nuclear weapons. That is a challenge, I would say, for all the think tanks, for all academia, you know, because we talk about nuclear disarmament, but we really haven't done much about how does our world look, you know, without nuclear weapons? How can we really be secure without nuclear deterrence? I believe we can, but, we, but there's a lot of work we need to do. Okay. Let's move a little bit further east into Pakistan. Since Pakistan tested nuclear weapons in 1998, it has, in my judgment, shown itself to be a quite remarkably irresponsible holder of that nuclear power. It, in 1999, permitted a number of its soldiers disguised as Mujahideen to sneak into Indian-held Kashmir starting the Kargil War. Uh, Pakistani scientists from the Atomic Energy agency were known to be in conversations uh, after they retired with uh, the Al-Qaeda network, meeting with Osama bin Laden, and Pakistani official AQ Khan, obviously, as you mentioned, sold his centrifuge technology and warhead design to Iran, Libya, and we suspect North Korea. My question for you as the head of the IAEA is that now that Dr. Khan is under house arrest, although some people would call this mansion arrest. Um, do you think the AQ Khan network is dead? Is it only dormant? What other things would the IAEA like to know about that network to reduce the probability that it will continue someday in the future to sell its wares around the world? We, we have done lots of work, Scott, to, to make sure that we dry it up the source of supply. I mean, we were... Everybody, I think, were absolutely stunned to see the sophistication, the complexity of that network. We have discovered that that network composed of at least 30 companies in 30 countries. I mean, right. not uh, just Pakistan, not and just Malaysia Pakistan. And, right. I mean, we're still looking at people in countries you will never think that they were engaged in that illicit 
uh, illicit uh, trafficking. You know, people in Switzerland, people in Germany, people in Turkey. I mean, without the government knowledge, I should right. say. But uh, we have been, you know, working very methodically with a lot of intelligence agencies to try to make sure that we have come to understand fully how this uh, Walmart, as I called it before, uh, was operating. You know, and. I think, I think we have a good grasp now of how it operated. I think we, we believe that we have dried the source of supply. Uh, how much damage was done in the process, we do not know. I, uh, we know that many of these uh, information, sensitive information, have been put on CD-ROMs. You know, who, who got these CD-ROMs? You know, where are these CD-ROMs? How many copies of them? You know, uh, this is still an issue we are, we are pursuing. Uh, and that, that makes our task more difficult because, as I mentioned, the knowledge is out of the tube. Uh, we need to be much more vigilant that that knowledge does not translate into industrial capacity, does not translate into a weapon capacity. So in the past, we were more comfortable to know that the knowledge is limited to the privileged few. Well, that's no longer the case. The, limit, the knowledge is, is across, across the oceans, and we, we just have to continue to endure continue to make sure that, that we have a more robust verification system, and that's one of the issues I keep insisting on. You know, uh, we are as uh, effective as the legal authority given to us, as the financial authority given to us, as the technology that development uh, provided to us, and now we need that verification as, as much as, as any time before. But with that also, I, I always remind people that I can't just deal with the symptoms. I just need to also deal with the causes. And uh, I see proliferation temptation precisely in areas of hostilities, precisely of areas when, when conflict has been going on for decades in the Middle East, in, in, in South Asia, in, in the Korean Peninsula. And the earlier we try to find a solution to this conflict, uh, the, the, the temptation to, to develop nuclear weapon will drop dramatically. I, I always ask the question why, rhetorically, you know, why I'm not concerned as much about Finland developing, you know, nuclear weapon. Why I'm concerned about many countries in the Middle East, for example. I mean, and the answer. I'm glad to know you're not worried about the Finnish bomb. <laughs> well, I still do verification there. But, good, good. But but Trust they, verify. But uh, exactly. But but the, but the answer, frankly, is the sense of insecurity that sure. that prevails in in these in these regions. You know. That's right. Um, one of the controversial uh, proposals that the administration has placed in front of Congress is something that you've commented on, moving a little bit east from Pakistan, is India. Um, the Bush administration has proposed a major change in U.S. policy towards India if Congress approves, permitting the United States to sell nuclear technology and uranium uh, to India, despite the fact that India developed nuclear weapons and has not joined the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. The debate in Washington, as far as I can see, often pits people who have strategic, broad vision of India and the United States as partners and value that most against people who place non-proliferation as the highest priority and are concerned about this deal. You surprise many people in the nuclear non-proliferation community by favoring the, India, the potential India-U.S. nuclear cooperation deal. Can you explain to us why you support that proposal and how, it will, how you can reduce the likelihood that it will create precedents that will let other countries cut deals with other non-compliant members of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty? 
Scott, once in a while, in a while I have to come with a surprise, otherwise the job will get very boring. So, <laughs> but on, on, on India, I, th I think you're right. Uh, uh, India is, is exactly an example of what I have been saying, that we need to think outside the box, that things have changed dramatically in the last 30 years, that we need to have developed a new framework for using nuclear energy. One of them, I said, is multinational approaches to the fuel cycle. The second one is move energetically on disarmament and lead by example, the weapon state to lead by example. So to show the countries that status or power does not come with acquiring nuclear weapons. And a third is just to bring these three countries who remain outside the regime altogether, India, Pakistan, and Israel, into the fold. Uh, India have decided from, since the, the development of the NPT in 1970 that NPT does not serve into its interest, that, uh, that India re require or needs either nuclear disarmament by, by all or development of its own nuclear weapons you know, until there is an arms control and disarmament agreement. India has not, has been upfront, you know, has not violated its, its legal obligation, any legal obligation. India just came late in the game, you know, exactly like Britain, like the US, like Russia, they, they have de decided that for the time being, you know, while others are keeping nuclear weapon, we would like to have our own nuclear weapon because of our security concern. Didn't violate an agreement because it never signed the agreement. Because they haven't signed the agreement. Now, the, the international community approach to India for the last 30 years to say is, you are an outcast, you need, to be, you, you need to remain outside the regime altogether. To me, that was really you know, cutting our nose to spite our face. You know, with, with the current development with regard to nuclear terrorism, uh, with the current development that we need to work, all of us, as a partner to, to, to contain the spread of, of, of nuclear uh, weapons, uh, we cannot afford to have a country like India that is <coughs> one billion people, that's one-sixth of the world population, the largest democracy in the world, being regarded as an outcast. Uh, the agreement which is proposed, you know, the US-India agreement, does really does not, does not take any position on, on India as a nuclear weapon state. In other words, it doesn't add to the Indian nuclear weapon capability, it doesn't take away from that. It basically saying, this is a reality, you know, we are putting this aside, but until we have a, an arms control agreement, you know, among the weapon states where India should be part of it, let us try to see how we can work together. India needs energy, needs energy badly. India has like 500 million people who still live, live under the poverty level. Uh, India is, is, has a very ambitious program, a nuclear power ambitious program, and it is in everybody's interest that India, in expanding its power program, gets the latest technologically advanced, safe, and secure power program. Uh, India, in return, have agreed that they have joined you know, the guidelines of the London Supplier Group, which means that they will work together to make sure that they have a, a very stringent export control regime. India have decided that they will separate their uh, weapon program from the civilian program and accept to put all the civilian power program under the IA verification, which is again positive step toward the universalization of, of verification. Right. So I and see, they'll make that permanent as well. And they'll make that permanent. So I see, I see that agreement primarily 
as an, an energy-driven agreement that would have the end result, India coming closer to the rest of the world and working with the rest of the world to f fight uh, terrorism, nuclear terrorism, to fight further proliferation. So from a safety, security, uh, and, and non-proliferation perspective, I see that agreement as a win-win situation. It is not a perfect agreement. Everybody would like India to, to be a non-nuclear weapon state, but everybody else, including myself, would Everybody like, outside of India would like Outside of India. But uh, I would like also to see everybody as a right. non-nuclear weapon Fair state. Enough. So, uh, so I, I, I see the Indian agreement, as I said, it, it is not, it, it, it doesn't in any way impact, it doesn't in any way impact on the non-proliferation regime as we see it. India, nobody would ever think that India will join the MPT. Nobody will ever think that any other country will, will come out of the NPT because India is getting clean source of energy. So it's a neutral on the non-proliferation issue, but it has a lot of advantage in terms of bringing one important major country on board and providing it with safe and secure nuclear energy. What about the second half of the question, though? China has already stated that if this deal goes through, they're going to pursue improved relations with Pakistan and will consider some kind of deal to help Pakistan uh, with uranium supplies and, and uh, more nuclear technology. Is there anything that the IAEA could do or that the U.S. Congress could do to minimize the precedent-setting nature of this potential deal between the U.S. and India? Well, I think what you said, Scott, confirm my point that this, the whole thing is really has to do with regional security again. Yeah. And, and the more we can you know, lower the pitch in, in that region, you know, by bringing India and Pakistan on board, by you know, encouraging both of them to work together as, as, as they have been. To continue they, the arms control talks. Exactly, the continue talks. the arms control talk. That right. the more we have a better Chinese-Indian-Pakistani relationship, the better for everybody. I, I believe, as I said, that, that at one point in the future, I mean, Pakistan is no different from India. Pakistan needs nuclear energy. You know, uh, Pakistan has need, badly need nuclear uh, safe, safety assistance in the field of nuclear energy. And I have been making the point that once Pakistan satisfies the requirements that India satisfied, basically drying up, making sure that AQCAN network, you know, is, is absolutely, you know, uh, neutralize and, and that we need to look into, in the future, providing Pakistan with energy. Again, making sure that in no way we are expanding or consolidating Pakistan weapon program. Same, same we are doing with India. But what, what, what's, if that deal were to go through with India, I, I do not exclude in the future under you know, appropriate circumstances that Pakistan will also get a deal that bring it, bring it closer to the rest of the international community. Two last stops before we open it up for questions and comments from the audience. First is Pyongyang. The North Koreans in uh, December 2002 expelled all IAEA inspectors from the Yongbyon reactor complex. And then they announced in January 2003 that they were withdrawing from the NPT. And in February 2005, they announced that they possessed a nuclear deterrent. These events add up, I'd argue, to a colossal security policy failure for the United States and the global community. And we in this country focus on this problem less than we should, in part just because of the magnitude of other crises that we have elsewhere in Iraq and Iran. 
Now, my question about North Korea is the following. In your view, as a, as a lawyer and as head of the IAEA, was North Korea's withdrawal from the treaty legal and legitimate? That is, after all, they did that only a, after they'd been caught by your agency cheating on their agreement and then suspected by the United States, and we believe from Pakistani sources as well, of cheating on the agreed framework in terms of starting a new enrichment program after they agreed not to do such things. Was their withdrawal from the treaty legal and legitimate in your view? Well, as you know, under the NPT, a country has the right to withdraw from, from the treaty if its supreme national interest, as it's called, is put in, in jeopardy. You know, Whether the supreme national interest of North Korea was put in jeopardy when they were caught cheating, you know, is, is of course, is, is debatable. Uh, the pity, however, Scott, that that issue was not taken up by the Security Council. We reported in 1992 to the Security Council, you know, that North Korea was found in non-compliance. And frankly, at that time, I, what I would have liked to see, you know, is a, that Security Council to initiate a process of dialogue with North Korea. You know, what we see right now through the six-party talk should have be, maybe taken place prior. You know, 12 there. years ago, right. you know, uh, that didn't happen. Uh, North Korea had a bilateral agreement with the U.S. Then that agreement, you know, went through difficulties because uh, alleged uh, North Korea cheating of, on, on that agreement. At the end of the day, North Korea left the system altogether, you know, went out of the system, uh, kicked out the inspectors, and came out later on to say, I have news for you, we have nuclear weapons, you know. And that's when I, we discuss Iran, you know, in the last couple of years, I've been always reminding people that we need to always to keep in mind the North Korean, you know, situation. We need not repeat what happened in the North Korean situation. We need to keep Iran within the system. We need to make sure that we work, you know, through incentives and disincentives to, again, to resolve the issue, hopefully, politically, diplomatically. We pushing a country all the way to the Bring, you know, is in, unless, unless you have a fantastic magic formula to resolve the issue, in, end up in, in a more exacerbated situation than, than what you have. And uh, North Korea is still, is still a, you know, a, a major problem. You're right. We, we don't talk about it enough, but North Korea right now is, is, is declaring that they have nuclear weapons. And the longer we, they continue to be in that status, the more they are accepted in the collective consciences consciousness of the world as a nuclear weapon state, which, which would be terrible because it, it will have a lot of negative ramification in, in its neighborhood, in, North, in South Korea, in Japan, in Taiwan, and many other countries. One last question. An important role that you play is to remind Americans of their roles and responsibilities um, in this area. Um, so I'd like to ask you to comment briefly on the United States. Um, Congress did not ratify the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, and um, it should be rem remembered that representatives of the U.S. government told the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty Review Conferences in 95 and in 2000 that ratifying the CTBT, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, was the litmus test by which they should judge whether the United States was honoring its part of the Nonproliferation Treaty to work in good faith towards eventual disarmament. What's your view on whether the United States is keeping up with its commitments under the NPT? 
Well, I'd like, rather than passing judgment, I'd like to say, Scott, that the U.S. should definitely do more in leading by example with regard to nuclear disarmament. You know, uh, nuclear disarmament is a process. I mean, I don't expect that this is going to happen overnight. As I said, the, you know, uh, we need to develop an alternative system that does not depend on nu a nuclear deterrence. But that's one, one, one thing. The other thing is I can't see any justification, as I said, that 30 years after the NPT coming into force to see, to see 27,000 warheads in existence. I can't really fathom why you know, we still have the U.S. And, and Russia maintaining their nuclear arsenals at a hair trigger alert, or as you call it, Cold War status alert, that the, the leader of each country will have half an hour, you know, as some nun will describe it to me, uh, to respond in case of a reported nuclear attack. You know, I, I can see, and I, it's, it's really disappointing, to say the least, that the U.S. have not uh, ratified, the Congress have not ratified this comprehensive test ban treaty, which was regarded when the, uh, when the non-proliferation treaty was concluded as the jewel in the crown. You know? uh, I, I cannot see why the U.S. continue to insist that the, a treaty that ban the production of fissile material for weapon purpose is not verifiable. You know? uh, these are, you know, while we know that we are verifying enrichment and reprocessing activities in Japan, for example. So, uh, these are all you know, concrete steps. I'd like I hope Congress and the administration will understand that the more they lead by example with regard to the nuclear disarmament, you know, the more they will have much more moral authority to deal with any effort to proliferate. If the message is set by the U.S. and the other weapon states that we are committed to move in that direction, I think it would be they have much more stronger voice and much more moral authority to come back to, to the would-be cheaters and to say, you know, that is not the way, you know, we are, you know, this is a historical anomaly that we have, we have nuclear weapons, we are moving into a different system, and no way we would allow you to do that. But as long as you continue and you see effort to modernize nuclear arsenal, as, as long as you see some countries talk about actual use of nuclear weapons, it's very difficult to try to tell everybody else that nuclear weapons are really good for us, important for our security, but it's not good for you. I'd like to open it up to questions from the audience. If you could go to the microphone and briefly identify yourself and ask your question to Dr. Albaradai. Take the first question from the gentleman at the microphone on this side, please. Uh, this is a question to Dr. Mohammed. Uh, can you comment, please, on the uh, Israeli issue, you know, acquiring nuclear weapons? Uh, because that seems to be a very uh, double standard policy I see in this situation, where Israel being an aggressive you know, uh, country, it's been bullying the whole countries in the Middle East, uh, it, uh, it's been occupying uh, Arab countries, you know, land, and still they are in the process, or probably they already acquired uh, nuclear weapons, but it's all hush-hush, nobody touched them, nobody talks about them. I appreciate your comments. Thanks. Well, the, since the 1960 and, or 70s, Israel, again, like India and, and, and Pakistan, uh, decided that 
giving up their nuclear deterrence is, does not serve their security interests, and they have decided to remain outside the regime. Uh, while all the other countries of the Middle East now are part of that regime, uh, that creates a, a sense of security imbalance. I'm, I've, I've always mentioned that when I visit countries in the Middle East, there is a sense of unfairness, sense of inequity, sense of impotence, if you like, that one country remains outside the regime while all of us have committed ourselves to be, not to develop nuclear weapons. The, the situation in, with regards to the Israeli nuclear weapon capability, if you like, because they maintain a policy of ambiguity, is the chicken and the egg. If you talk to the Israeli officials, they say, this is our ultimate deterrence. How could we give that up, you know, while we're still being not recognized by many countries in the region, while recently, for example, they heard statement that they, they might be wiped off the map. So there is a lot of a strong feeling in, in Israel that uh, you will not, we will not give up our nuclear deterrence unless there is a comprehensive peace in the region. If you talk to, to the Arab countries and other Middle Eastern countries, again, there is this sense of impotence that Israel is sitting with Democles' sword over our head, that if, they, if Israel wants to have peace, they need to join the NPT as a confidence-building measure, and that would, in fact, in, enhance the peace process. My proposal to both parties has been, well, let us, you know, get out of this vicious circle. Let us start a parallel dialogue with the peace process that addresses security issues. So in conjunction with the peace process that talks about land for peace, Palestinian state, let us also have a, a discussion about what sort of security system we are going to have in the Middle East in the future, in the post-peace era. And, and that system clearly has to be based on elimination of all weapons of mass destruction, including nuclear weapons from the Middle East. Uh, the good news is that Israel agree with that, that in, in the context of peace process, in the context of, of comprehensive peace, Israel should give up its nuclear weapon. Other countries should give up uh, their chemical and biological weapons or capabilities. Uh, so uh, that's not happening yet. I mean, we are still focusing on the Middle East, on the land for peace, Palestinian territory. Uh, we need to start as early as possible a parallel dialogue on security in the Middle East that ultimately will undergird the peace, the peace uh, settlement that, that will come in the Middle East. We're, we're, we're dealing with a, with a region that has going through 100 years of distrust, war, fears, and you really need a, a very much a strong system of security for the foreseeable future based on elimination of all weapons of, of mass destruction, based on limitation of conventional armament, and based on a lot of confidence-building measures. And the earlier we start doing that, the better for everybody. Question from this side. Dr. Edbar Radai, uh, France has been very successful in using nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. And given the continued energy crisis, how should countries that need energy badly, how can they best build nuclear capabilities for peaceful purposes? And what are your recommendations as a Nobel Prize peace winner to world leaders in terms of building world peace? I can summarize the question. It's, it's France and some other states have very successfully used nuclear power generation for a large percentage of its energy supplies. How can you, as Nobel Peace Prize winner, uh, view the future growth of nuclear power in the developing world in particular, or to meet energy needs? Um, 
I, I, think, I think nuclear energy is, is, is going to be, in the next at least 50 years, a very important part of the energy mix. As you rightly said, France relies on nuclear energy for 78% of its electricity production, and, and many other countries, Japan, Switzerland, Holland, I mean, they rely <coughs> on a very... In the U.S. here, 20% of electricity comes from nuclear energy, you know, uh, with the operating of 104 power reactors here in the U.S. I think nuclear energy is needed, will be needed, because the, the option we have in the next 50 years is between fossil fuel, with all the problem with uh, climate change, and, and nuclear energy, with also the, the, the concern about severe accidents. So, but we need to weigh the cost and benefit. We need to make sure that we use both source of energy, in fossil fuel, coal, oil, and gas, responsibly. Uh, we need to use nuclear energy responsibly. We need to continue to work on uh, renewable source of energy because that, that is the future. We need to continue to work on fusion, which, which we are going to do. So we are, in, in many ways, see a lot of expansion of nuclear energy in many developing countries. I mentioned, if you look at India, Pakistan, uh, India and, 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 and China, it's a major expansion of, of use of nuclear energy. Turkey is about to announce you know, the program for using of nuclear energy. Pa Indonesia is, 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 is again on the, on, on the verge of, of embarking on a on, on nuclear energy, uh, nuclear power program. Vietnam is the same. So there's a lot of countries moving in, in that direction. And as I said, I mean, uh, country, developing countries need, the, need energy. Without energy, there is no development. It was... It, when you go to Africa, I mean, Africa is called the dark continent. It's it simply because when you fly over Africa, there is no light, you know, and uh, without light, without energy, there is no development. So, uh, absolutely, I, I, you know, as I said, I, in, in, what I am basically saying, I mean, I, may, I want to make it very clear, we need nuclear energy, but we need to use nuclear energy responsibly and uh, maximize the benefit, minimize the risk. Let's stay on that side, this side for another question, please. Um, what do you think the effects would be on <clears throat> friendly countries, say, Israel, in the Middle Eastern region, if Iran did um, acquire nuclear weapons? What would be the effect of Israel if Iran develops nuclear weapons or is seen to be developing well, the ideal situation is for both of them not to have nuclear weapons. You know, that's that's you know, if you if you were to have more countries in the Middle East with nuclear weapons, you would continue to increase the risk of nuclear weapon being used either through miscalculation and or through you know unintentionally. Uh, what you know, a couple of years ago we came close to that in the India-Pakistan situation, you know, region and. The more countries have nuclear weapons, the more the prospect of, of, of possible use of nuclear, of, of nuclear weapons. And uh, at Stanford, you have a lot of Nobel laureates in nuclear physics. They will tell you, you know, uh, the impact, the devastating impact, the horrifying impact of using, of using uh, nuclear weapons. I saw recently, I think in, in the New York Times, a letter, you know, signed by like 20 Nobel laureates in nuclear physics saying, you know, addressed to the nuclear weapon states, basically saying, don't even think of using nuclear weapons. Let me follow that question up with a, uh, a controversial point that I think was underneath the question. Um, next week, June 7th, will be the 25th anniversary of the Israeli attack on the Osirika reactor in Iraq. When you look at Israel 
and other states, including the United States, and look at Iran, um, do you think that a military option is um, totally off the table? Do you think it is something that people are considering? And what are your views on that um, possible solution, if, that, if, that's, if solution's I, the right term? Yeah. Well, I can't read the intentions of those who are in position of power. You know. But I can tell you, Scott, that there is no military solution you know, uh, to the Iranian issue because, in fact, it would do absolutely the opposite. You know. I think if force were to, use, to be used in Iran, a, the development of an Iranian nuclear weapon program would be an absolutely a national priority with the consensus of every Iranian, you know, right, left, and center. So I don't think there is a, <coughs> there is a, 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 a military solution because you cannot bomb knowledge. I mean, what you see in Iran right now is not, as we know, facilities, production facilities that can be used for, for weapon program. You see, but Iran has acquired the knowledge. And knowledge is, is, is not to be bombed. I should also say, you know, that in the case of bombing of Israel, of the Osirat uh, reactor in Iraq, I, I am told that Iraq decided to go underground with a massive program to develop nuclear weapons after that attack. So new, uh, using force sometimes, in fact, accelerate a country's desire to develop nuclear weapons and not the opposite. Question over on this side. Scott, you keep asking questions that I want to ask, so I'm going to try and make this one a little different. Um, the United States has already threatened Iran um, with the possibility of military force. And so if and when you do go to Iran and have inspections, my fear is that the same thing is going to happen in Iran that happened in Iraq, and that is that the United States government will listen to what you say and find those little slivers of ambiguity or uncertainty and make their unilateral decision to bomb. Uh, it happened already. I think it's going to, I fear that it's going to happen again. So my plea to you is that if you do go in and do inspections to be as precise as you can be and as clear as you can be and not allow this government of ours to find those little ways to use what you say to justify a unilateral attack. Well, I can tell you, I was, I think, as precise as possible before the Iraq war. I checked, I checked my statements, and I think there was nothing there to, to indicate that I have seen a shred of evidence that Iraq was developing nuclear weapons. Uh, but all I said at that time, I remember, that uh, I've seen no evidence, but I cannot conclude, and I needed three more months. And I remember I, exactly what I said at that time at Security Council. I said... Give me three months, this will be an investment in peace. Uh, unfortunately, I did not get that, that time. Uh, luckily, or, well, I, I'm not sure that luckily, but uh, we were proven right. I was proven right. The agency was proven right. Uh, that there was no nuclear or any weapon of mass destruction programs in Iraq. Uh, but I hope that all of us have learned from the Iraq experience, you know, that you cannot just jump the gun. You have to be absolutely sure of your facts. That 
unless there is absolutely an imminent danger you know you are facing and unless you have no other means to address that danger through diplomacy through dialogue uh, force could you could only think you can only think of using force when it's the last option when it's the only option available and even then you do it with with a very heavy heart because force does not does not solve problems in fact in, in many cases it create additional problems question on this side um, I'd like to thank both Dr. Alberde and Professor Sagan for being here today. And my question is, how does the IAEA qualify letting certain countries hold nuclear weapons while kind of banning other countries from holding them and from developing them? And if you agree with me, why that happens? That we verify. Why does the IAEA, or more precisely the NPT, accept that some states... Sure can have nuclear weapons and other states can't? It's a very good question, but, but the answer is that that two categories was, were, were regarded in 1970 as a, a, a period of transition. Uh, in 1970, the five nuclear weapon states that were acknowledged as such uh, by the NPT com were co committed themselves in the treaty uh, to negotiate in good faith toward, to, to, and move toward nuclear disarmament. So, it was not in any way meant to be permanent status. It was not meant in any way to be the haves and have-nots. It was meant to be a transitional period, give the five nuclear weapon states time to get rid of their nuclear weapons, develop a different system of security. Unfortunately, as, as I've just said, after 30 years, we haven't really, uh, we don't have really a, a record to be very proud of. Sure, nuclear uh, weapons, probably arsenal, have have been reduced from 60,000 warheads during the Cold War, the peak of the Cold War. But we still have 27,000 warheads, and we still have eight or nine nuclear weapon states. So the moral of the story that this system, you know, cannot be, is not sustainable. If you really want a durable security system, the weapon states need to bite the bullet and move toward nuclear disarm. This will have to be the last question from the audience on this side. Doctor, you seem optimistic that a peaceful win-win settlement could be negotiated um, with Iran towards the nuclear issue. And I was just wondering what you make of the increasingly alarming rhetoric we are hearing from Tehran, um, and whether this is a, a strategy, a negotiating strategy, or, or whether these are actions um, of a regime that can be negotiated with. Can you be specific about which rhetoric? And particularly you're towards, to? I mean, uh, for example, towards Israel saying. Um, the blot on the map comment, um, just alarming comments like that. Well, we have seen, again, if you are in the business of what I, the business I'm in, you know, for like 40 years, you need, you, you know how to separate the, the wheat from the shaft. And uh, there's a lot of rhetoric from all sides, you know. This is part of diplomacy, if you like, but uh, I see on both sides a, a desire to reach a, a settlement. I, as I said, I, I, I have been talking to Secretary Rice last week, and uh, I see a, a clear commitment by the U.S. To, to find a diplomatic solution to the Iranian issue for a variety of reasons which I just talked about. I just talked today with the National Security Advisor, National Security Advisor of Iran, and again, he assured me of their absolute commitment to, to, to try to find 
a negotiated solution. Of course, there are differences of views, there are differences of perceptions, uh, but you need to always to distinguish between public diplomacy, as you call it, and, and the real diplomacy. You know, and public diplomacy sometimes is not a reflection of, of what is going in, in, in the, with, be, behind closed doors. I, my business is to listen to what's happening behind the closed doors, tell people, you know, lower the pitch in, in your public diplomacy because sometimes it, it, in fact, it doesn't help any. And uh, the more that we, we take a cool-headed approach you know, to these issues, the more we, we, more we understand that we are all in the same boat. We are particularly with, with the nuclear uh, weapons, you know, spreading. We are either all going to survive together or we are either go, all going to fail together. Dr. Bardai, you have established a reputation for giving frank um, advice to members of Congress, to leaders in Tehran, to President Putin, to uh, President Bush. Can you give, in a closing comment, your frank advice to this group of uh, Stanford community, concerned citizens, students, faculty members, about what they should do to help you in your efforts to reduce nuclear risks in the future? Scott, absolutely. Uh, I think it's apparent from, from our conversation that we have a dysfunctional system of collective security, a, a system that cannot endure. You know. uh, it will change when civil society, when citizens take the matter in their own hand, if you like, take security issues in their own hand. You know, it has always been uh, uh, regarded as sort of an issue that should be left to government, security that's too complex that should be left to government. Well, that's not true at all. You know, uh, civil society has been engaged in trade, in environment, in, in many other issues, but very little with regard to security. While, in my view, security means our own survival. And I think the message should be loud and clear to government. Uh, we need a very strong lobby, if you like, that send a very clear message to all governments that we do not want to live under the shadow of a nuclear holocaust. We do not want to live in a world that we do not know tomorrow whether, whether one part of our civilization will be, will be destroyed. We would like to, you to work for a collective security system that is not based on nuclear deterrence, but is based on human solidarity, based on the common, common values we all share based on the fact that we are all one part of the same human family. And it's a system of security that is driven by people, that has people as its focus. And I think a lot of that is rest with civil society. And the earlier you, you engage yourself in security issues, the earlier you would be able to help me. I can only succeed if you, if you help me. And uh, I need your help, and I'm sure I will get it. It just remains to thank Dr. Arbaradai. I must say that I've thought of the gold of your Nobel Prize as not just an honor of your past work, but an investment in the future uh, success of your organization. So thank you uh, both for coming here and sharing your ideas and your thoughts with this community, but also, most importantly, for the great work that you continue to do.
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.